Lord, we thank you again for this, this evening and for this opportunity to look into your word and to uh, this prophetic book, this, this chapter, these verses, Lord. And again, we pray that your your word would go forth, that your, uh, your words would take root in each one of us. Yes, this in Yeshua's name. Amen. So let's um, have someone actually read the text. And Karen, are you up for reading tonight? You know what? I, I didn't bring my Bible. You didn't bring your Bible. You told me that earlier. Someone who does not have a mouthful cake wants to read. Which book? We're reading Hosea chapter 14. And depending on which Bible you have, it might start in verse 1 or in verse 2. It starts with Return, O Israel. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Chapter 14 of Hosea. Yep. Verse, and my this is 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously, that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Uh, I'm going to mispronounce it. Assyria um, cannot save us. We will not mount war horses we will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made for you are the for in you the fatherless find compassion I will heal their waywardness and love them freely for my anger has turned away from them I will be like the dew to Israel he will blossom like a lily like a cedar of Lebanon, he will send down his roots, his young shoots will grow, his splendor will be like an olive tree, his fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. Men will dwell again in his shade, he will flourish like the grain, he will blossom like a vine, and in his fame will be like, oh, and his fame will be like the wine from Lebanon. O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? I will never answer him and care for him. I am like a uh, green pine tree. Your your fruitfulness comes from me. Who is wise? He will realize these things. Who is discerning? He will understand them. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. Thank you. So, <clears throat> Rabbi Haim was um, teaching all through the winter on Yeshua's vine, and one of the areas, one of the reasons he did that is because it seems that a lot of people, as they come here, they need to be equipped to do God's work on some level. And on the equipping end, at times, one of the other sides of that coin of God equipping us is God healing us. A lot of times, it's not always obvious at times that as God's going to equip us, He's going to heal us. But usually there are things that have to change in us, things that have to be um, turned around, have to we have to see breakthrough in before we can really see God's hand of equipping God's restoration upon us. 
So as we, um, so Han was really felt to led to talk about last week Ezekiel 18, and then this week Hosea 14. And I, I don't know, has anyone ever done any kind of study of the book of Hosea on their own, or been a part of a Bible study of, on the book of Hosea? I think I preached on some of Hosea. Okay. Well, Hosea's kind of a different book. He's, he's one of the, quote, minor prophets, but they're not minor in the sense of their message. They're just called minor because the content of their books is much smaller than, for instance, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and, and um, Jeremiah. But, the, <clears throat> but Hosea takes place during the same time of Isaiah and Amos and Micah. And does anyone know what God, what was the big thing God asked Hosea to do? To marry a prostitute named Gomer. To marry a prostitute named Gomer. And why did God want him to do that? I would say is to show uh, Gomer was a, a symbol of Israel and Hosea was a symbol of God. That's correct. That's correct. They wanted to. He wanted to show Israel what his relationship, his love relationship, was like there. And it was. It was. It was definitely a different. T- it's not a different. Uh, this isn't like a user-friendly book or a book people reach for and say. I think I'm going to read Hosea tonight before I go to bed. It's really going to put me to sleep or something. But it's it's definitely a book that kind of is very unconventional. And most of the commentators actually point to the fact that most of this um, narrative takes place during Jeroboam II, who was a king of Israel, that you can find if you read your book of Kings. And and the point is, is as... As Jeroboam II came to power, it was during the time when Israel was getting ready to completely decline the northern kingdom at this point, not Judah in the south. But the kingdom is already split. The kingdom of Israel split into Judah and and Israel. And Israel is sometimes called Ephraim in the scriptures. And so we sometimes see that referring to the northern kingdom. But Hosea, most of this is taking place in the latter part of his life. And what I thought was really interesting about that is that could you imagine somebody who you knew that was a godly person then going and marrying a prostitute and doing some of the things that Hosea did, you know, and and having that kind of life. This is someone that God had anointed and was using and was speaking the word of God to people, and all of a sudden they're in a totally different situation. And it's just interesting how... We have a lot of these themes. This final chapter is like the um, over and over again. Hosea kind of makes a plea: Israel, you need to get it. You need to turn around and come back to God. He really loves you, and he wants you to come back to him. And over and over again in the book of Hosea, that's a constant theme. And many of the themes that we'll kind of dig into tonight are also seen earlier in the book. They're also seen earlier in the book. Because God wanted genuine repentance from his people, the people that were truly struggling, the people that um, were not living, but they were also kind of giving themselves over to other gods. And so throughout this book, um, Hosea makes this plea. And so this is kind of like the the final plea, the final request. Please, please come back to God in, in, this, in this chapter. 
So in this chapter 14, it's traditionally read um, in the in the segment called Shabbat Shuvah. Does anybody know when Shabbat Shuvah is? Well, you, you're kind of new to us, so you're gonna you're gonna get a pass on that. Okay. <laughs> but but during the feast days, we have we have a feast day coming up at Shavuot. Okay. And and for the I'm sorry, I'm spelling that wrong. Shavuot, and that means simply weeks. Just to let you know, in English, sometimes we call it in the Greek Pentecost, and that means to count fifty. Okay, all those are the same thing in in, in our feast. But w- after this feast, the, after this spring feast, we come to we kind of go into the summer and we don't have many feasts at all. And then at the end of the summer, we have the the feasts leading into Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and the High Holy Days. Which Rosh Hashanah they call the the the, the day of the trumpet or the beginning of the year. The day of the trumpet, Yom Teruah, and Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Okay? And Shabbat Shuvah fell between them. And so every year on Shabbat Shuvah, um, this this portion is read that we're looking at in Hosea tonight. The, the Shabbat Shuvah always was the Sabbath that fell between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And so it was considered a very high Sabbath. And the idea was that God was wanting people making a final plea if you hadn't done your repentance yet. And the first word, return, is the word shuv. And shuv is used in a variety of senses in the chapter. If if you're a Hebrew scholar, you'll, you'll probably enjoy this. But I mean, I'm just saying shuv has many different meanings. It can mean to turn and to return. And to repent. And in verses 2 and 3, it clearly means that. And then we'll see it again later in verse in verse 5 and in verse 8. But in those, in those translations, it's talking about God's anger turning. And it's also talking about, um, in verse 8, it's being translated. Some, some translations have it as again. Again, because it can also have that sense of something happening a second time. And so, here in these first, it's talking about repentance and what repentance means. And I, I have the question on your notes, and maybe this is something, what does repentance look like? And the reason why I have that in your notes is because for some person, they might think of repentance very simply in one fashion, and someone else might think of it in another way. And so my question is, what does repentance look like? And this is opened up to everybody. Anyone can answer this. And, and I, there's not too many wrong answers, I, I guess is what I'm saying. What do, what do you think repentance looks like? It looks like agreeing with God and given or um, assuming that there was something wrong done. You're agreeing with God and you're turning 180 from that wrong. Okay. Okay. Anybody else? Starts with recognition of where where you've missed missed the mark on something, or recognizing that you haven't done something correctly. Okay. 
it's a complete change of mind about something. So instead of looking at it how you did, you come to your, well, as a believer, you come to your senses and you see it, you're, it's a total mind change about whatever it is and you see it God's way. And, and that's interesting because one of the first things I think that we have to include in repentance is the idea that God has to sometimes do a, a work of revelation to us of what what do we need to do to repent. And I think that's a huge piece of it is God has to show us that we were off somewhere. Sometimes we come to the knowledge of it ourselves, you know, oh, I shouldn't have done that, you know. And maybe, or maybe there's consequences in which we understand that was not a good idea. That was completely not led of me. And so, I like to think of it in terms of three words that begin with R. The first one is regret. And regret is some kind of sorrow. And in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about this kind of regret. Because he said sometimes people have regret, but it's in a worldly way, like, oh man, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry that things are bad for me now. But it's not really a godly type of sorrow that I am hurt God, I hurt people. There's relationships that are broken now because I did something wrong. And Paul says, repentance from godliness is what leads to life. If you have a godly side, sorrow to your repentance. It's, it's got to be something that, that goes deep within you, and there has to be some kind of heartfelt connection that you made a mistake, that you did something that needs to cause a turn. Now the next word is the idea of reject. And part of that is, hopefully, it's the behavior. You get the understanding that my behavior was off. And I like the way Isaiah kind of demonstrates it. He says, stop sinning and start doing good things. Stop doing the evil things and start doing the good things. And that's kind of a good um, analogy because it gives us the understanding that there's something that not only do you take out of the thing, but you need to be doing something back in to equate the thing kind of thing. And it's, it's, it's not always perfect in this way because sometimes we think, well, I'm really sorry this happened, but we don't always make the connection of, I'm going to stop behaving that way because that was something that led to someone else's hurt. And so they're, both of these things have to work together. And the third one we totally need the Lord for, and that's resolve. Resolve is the idea that I am not going to do this anymore. And hopefully it's something that starts in our heart and begins to work out. But we totally need the Lord for that. Because the rabbis, this is where they first got this idea of regret, reject, and resolve. But they have the idea of you resolve to do it by yourself. It's something you, mind over matter, you get a hold of, of the evil inclination, and you resolve you're not going to do this kind of behavior anymore. Okay? But with everyone, what happens when we try to do it ourselves? Oh, boy. I wouldn't have done it in the first place. <laughs> 
Well, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy, and we find out, we can learn that if we keep trying to do things on our own, and through our own strength and in our own understanding, we're always going to fail. We're always going to be back repeating the cycle. I'm regretting what I did again. I know I need to reject the behavior again, and I know I need to have a different plan of resolution. And so you can completely go on that cycle, or you can say, Lord, I need your help to make the resolution here. Because I don't have the solution, I don't pretend to have the solution, and I need your help to bring about the solution. And so that's kind of a, a basic look of what I think repentance should look like, because I think it's both heartfelt, it answers the point of saying there's some actions that also need to change, because a lot of times people say, well, you know, that person says they're sorry, but they keep doing the same behavior. And what do you do with that kind of person? You know, I've had people come up and say, you know, the person told me they were sorry, but they still keep doing the behavior. They still keep, you know, acting this way. And it's something that, that's why real repentance has to have all three of those kinds of things. And I'm not saying there's not, that's not perfect. There can also be other pieces of the puzzle, but that's kind of how I look at repentance, of getting both into our heart and getting into the rest of who we are and, and changing us. And that's kind of what repentance has to do. It has to get deep into us. It has to um, go deep. Now, there are bookends to this chapter. We see the word, your downfall, or this the same word in Hebrew. And I'm going to give, this is the last Hebrew word I'll give you, if I'm saying this right. Kashal. That, uh, from, that for, uh, for di- he don't read it as downfall. Yeah, this yeah, is your downfall. Yes. Kashal. And Kashal can mean to stumble. And that's how I saw it translated. It can also downfall. It has a sense of tottering or wavering. And we see that at both the, the beginning of the chapter and the end of the chapter. And I'll come back to, to this kashal at the end of the chapter and bring it out to you what I think is, is what God's really, really driving at when he gets to the, the idea of repentance. Because, but because of the downfall of why it's impossible to kind of do things in our own strength, why we need the Lord to get a hold of us, why we need him to do things. Now, this is in verse 3 where he said, or depending on your translation, John, I think it's verse 2, where God talks about, um, you shall take words with you, take words and return to the Lord. And I kind of, it kind of brought a lot of interesting things because it says the, the calves from our lips will change us, will bring us back to you. And I thought it was an interesting question to bring up. And this is something you're going to have whenever you have a messianic. You always kind of have these two opinions. Because um, a Jewish person, a lot of times they look at it this, these type of passages and they'll say, see, God sees this here. He sees atonement that you can be restored. 
through your own words. And there's no blood sacrifice. What do you guys think about that? There are righteous people on the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is the truth. And I think a lot of Jewish people think that we are righteous. We're just plain righteous. This is what Joe, I think, pretty much told us the day he talked to us. That was, I don't know, two years ago. Okay. And we had a huge <laughs> discussion about sin, and uh, we could not seem to resolve it at that particular meeting. But I think sin requires a blood sacrifice anyway, First Samuel says it does. And God is the standard. He is the one that sets the standard, and if he says blood is required for the remission of sins, then that's what it is. Okay, okay. David, you were going to say something? Yeah, I mean, there's many examples. You see, you know, these examples of um, it appears that there is forgiveness without <clears throat> blood sacrifice. There are. We looked at it. I mean, in Jonah, we could say there is. Oh, it just looked like the people of Nineveh repented. We can look at David after his sin with Bathsheba, and oh, he, he repented and God forgave him. There's a lot of examples, even the Psalms. But when you read them in context and you read the bigger sections, you see that none of them. These are examples, in a sense, of God saying, I don't want your sacrifice, I want something else. But they are, they're not really exceptions, or they're never uh, clearly like an, an abolishment of the sacrificial system. You know what I mean? Even in Psalm 51, it talks about that. He says, I want a clean lip, I want a clean heart. And then it goes on to say, and then I'll accept your sacrifice, and so forth. So so I guess my answer to your question is, uh, yeah, there are, there are examples of, uh, forgiveness without blood, but they are not—they are not proof uh, of the the fact that blood was not needed. It's always needed. In all those other examples, you see that ultimately there was a sacrifice and there was blood, and that's what really what God did want. But He's not—he doesn't want that only. Is usually what it means. And that's he, a good answer. In, in the uh, passages that I've studied, there's been a, there's a bunch of them because that's what—that's a big. You know, religious Jews will give that example, these examples that God doesn't want those anymore, and here's the reasons why. In every case, it's, it's never really as, as clear cut as that. And and I think at times it, there's no easy answer to some to some questions like this because many times we're used to the idea of blood being the answer for a lot of things, and and it is for sin. We know that it clearly says that in Leviticus seventeen eleven. It also says that when you confess your sins with a true heart today. There isn't a blood sacrifice required. It's that con through confession there does take healing, does come about because of Messiah's finished work today. And we don't have to go to and get an offer a sin sacrifice like they did then. So there's a little bit of both and. There's a little bit of yes and no here. And part of the problem is David is, is exactly right. In this particular passage, God is saying you haven't presented great sacrifices because they haven't had any meaning behind them. They're not been heartfelt. And that's kind of why Hosea is saying, we're going to return with our lips, the caps of our lips, and that what we say with our heart has, I mean, with our mouth has to match up with what's in our heart. And right now, in this time frame, when Hosea is talking, that is not the case. What the people are saying with their mouth 
is not what's being played out in their heart. And it's something that God wants both and. He wants what you say and what you do and what's in your heart to be the same. Because people can have things right on one end. They can have a good heart, but they can sometimes make the wrong decisions based on that good heart. Or they can uh, they can have a good heart and be making right decisions. Or it can be the vice versa. They can have a good heart, but they're making bad decisions all the time. And, and they... And so God wants both of those to match up for us. And in this particular situation, He's wanting their heartfelt to go deeper and not just be a surface type thing. And that's kind of what He's referring to when He says, the calves of our lips have to come forth. And that's why it's important that we sometimes bring these things out and talk about them in the open. Now going down as we get into the next verse in verse we see that God says no longer will they trust in horses or in the works of our hands. Does anybody have an idea of what he's referring to when he says those things, the horses and the works of our hands? Horses are military. Okay. Um, and I would think that isn't it, um, there, there's an alliance Long since I've read this. Um, there it, is an alliance, and you mentioned it. It's yeah, Assyria. Thank you. And it was with Egypt as well. And they were so, both looking to make an alliance. And so, again, it's trying to do it with our own hands, trying to, um, rather than a reliance um, on God, it's reliance on what we on the horses, on, on what mm-hmm. we are able to do, what we can. It's that control aspect. What you know, trying to set it up so that we can control it, so that we are um, taking charge, as opposed to a reliance on, on on God. That's that's how I interpret it. Is this um, is this when they were so Judah was very small, and Assyria was on the north, and Egypt was on the south, and they were they were. They were seeing what was around them, which Assyria was pretty bad news. Egypt was pretty bad news, and they were just right in the path between them. Am I in the right place um, historically? I don't know where you are historically. Um, um, yeah, historically, is this what is this was was this when Judah was still in existence, but Israel had had been exiled? no no Israel okay, had so not Israel's, been exiled. Okay. Because Hosea's main ministry was to the northern kingdom of Israel. So we have both kingdoms okay. in existence, but it was definitely during the twilight of the northern kingdom because we okay. see that um, just at the time of Sennacherib and when he came up against Jerusalem, Judah. Okay. And so I don't know if that kind of helps Thank you. in so the time frame of like Second Kings or Second Chronicles. But things were, things were getting pretty, pretty fiery. So, what, is this just on my on their level? They were just seeing, I mean, basically warfare, and that they were vulnerable to the powers that be. They were definitely vulnerable to God. the powers that be. Yeah. And so they looked to say, "We're 
it hasn't been working out. God hasn't been there for us. And we know that Israel had a number of kings that followed um, one after the other after the other. This is being the northern kingdom. And all of them, it said the same thing for the most... Most of them continued in the sons of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And they continued to do, to worship the two calves, and continued to do the, the worship of those idols. And some people still worshiped God, but they weren't depending on God as the main source of what they do. And so, because they weren't, because they weren't fully trusting in the Lord, the Lord raised up enemies, and they saw that an alliance would possibly save them from these enemies. And that alliance at this time would have been with Egypt and Assyria. So part of the, part of the issue is we today can still also get wrapped up in our resources and the strength of our own cleverness or the strength of who we are and part of what we teach in membership as part of what we teach here at Yeshua we want people to understand that it's the Spirit's working or it's God's inner working. And that's how I choose to look at and maybe make an application here is the work of our hands is to be guided and directed by the Spirit. And, and, and specifically, when we look at this idea in the membership class, we talk about a certain word, and the word is the Greek word, energeo. Does anybody remember from their days of membership what does energeo mean, or what does it look like? Well, energeo is just... Power. It's it's energy. It's power. It's energy. Energy. Yes, it does represent power. And it sometimes is translated by the word work in the New Testament quite often. And we actually look at different scriptures, and we can look at a couple to refresh your brain for those that have taken membership in the past and those that that maybe haven't taken membership and want to know these. But we're going to look at two scriptures, Acts 2.22 and Ephesians 2.10. Acts 2.22 and Ephesians 2.10. And Mr. Garcia, yes. can you read one of those for us? Sure. Men of Israel, listen to this. Yeshua from Nazareth was a man demonstrated to you to have been from God by the powerful works, miracles, and signs that God performed through him in your presence. You yourselves know this. This man was arrested in accordance with God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge. And through the urgency of persons not bound by the Torah, you nailed him up on a stake and killed him. Okay. So in this verse, we have several words, but the word I want to draw your attention to is the word powerful work. And this is, word is also used over and over again for God and the Spirit. 
Because one of the reasons why we talk about this word is God always does his work very effectively. In other words, when he does the work, when he does a job, it's done very effective. And so his work goes deep, deep down, and it does the work that it's meant to do. And therefore, we can also have that same application if we look to do things by the work of our own hands, we're always going to fall short. But if we look to God's hand, if we look to be letting Him or His Spirit work through us, we're going to see that same kind of effective work. Ephesians chapter 2. And let's start from verse 8. Verses 8 to 10. Katrina, are you up for reading? Is that a no? Oh, it's a, a phone thing. So is that a no? No, I can't. Just give me one second. Give her a second. Okay. One second. So the, the portion in Acts was read, um, the context of that was the time of Shavuot when Peter was addressing saying how God had done those works through the Messiah. In this particular situation, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is talking about the Spirit and how the Spirit moves within us to bring about change and restoration and what kind of effective work he does in us through that. Okay, you ready? Yes, verses 8 to 10. 8 through 10? Uh-huh. Oh, it says 8 to 10. That's 8, 9, and 10. All three verses. Okay, so it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of work, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Messiah Yeshua for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay. So, I'm sure some of you are familiar with the first part of this. That God, that we are saved by grace and this is not of ourself. Right? Right. Have you guys all heard this, I hope? Uh-huh, over and over again. Good! Good! It's good verses to be familiar with. So tell me about verse 10. Why is verse 10, like, so important? Why should... Because when I grew up, I always heard 8 and 9 and I knew about them, but I didn't know about verse 10. Why is verse 10 important? And yes, the word Enrogeo is in verse 10. Because he planned it that way from before time began. He planned it that way. And it's not that God saved us for our own cute cleverness either. He wants to use us to do something. To do something. And so, I like the way that King James puts it. He it calls it, we are his workmanship. And in other places, this word workmanship can be looked at in terms of maybe it's God's masterpiece. When God does a work, he wants it to be beautiful when it comes forth. And I like to this idea that God never makes junk. 
God never does junk. That's something I have to hear over and over again because we hear a lot of junk in the world and a lot of junk bombards us in the world. But if we understand that when God works and when God does things through us, it's not junk. It'll never be junk. There's always a redeeming aspect to it. And that's something that God saved us for so that we would be a masterpiece. We would be something that is not junk. And it's something... I like this uh, reading. For we are of God's making, created in union with the Messiah... Yeshua for a life of good actions already prepared by God for us to do. That's very good. What version is that? This is the Jewish, complete Jewish Bible. I do, I do like that. Good actions. So good actions. And so basically we're getting to the point of understanding that the work of our hands, the work of what we do has to be has to be in the Lord. Has to have the Lord surrounding it. And then the healing comes forth. The healing power of God touches us. And that's when all the blessings come. Because we feel God's healing. And sometimes God heals us and we don't feel anything. Have you ever had that experience? Where God maybe healed you or changed you and there wasn't like all the fireworks and, and excitement. You know, everyone gets it. So-and-so was healed and there's excitement and fireworks. But sometimes God does a healing invisibly. And you just go to the doctor and you find out there's nothing wrong with you anymore. Or you wake up in the morning and you feel better. And those are the kinds of work that God should still get the glory for. But a lot of times we don't always park on because... There's not all the extravaganza that takes place of everything that happened. But God is still at work to heal us. And God heals Israel in this passage. And then he brings all these blessings about. All these different blessings. And what I love about the blessings is, is that no, no, usually blessings are something that are like fruit. They grow into your life over time. And it's only after a little while and after you've had some maybe uh, thinking on it or you, you've stopped to count, you know, because we're in the time of counting the Omer, that you really seem to understand God has really healed me in this area. God has really blessed me in this area. God has done a work here that I didn't realize. Because I like the way the, way the branches and the roots, for example, that are talked about here... The way they grow. You know, if you walked by a tree each day and you tried to see how much the tree had grown each day, you'd probably get pretty depressed. Because you'd be like, Well, there's not much growth today. I don't I don't see any I don't maybe one more leaf, but that's it. But if you take maybe a month later or two months later and you come upon the same situation again and you look at it, you would say I noticed God do, really doing something here. And I like the two aspects of the tree that are talked about, the roots and the branches, because that's what our life is to be like. It's supposed to have, and I'm, I don't know how well this tree is going to look, but we're going to have branches down here, or roots down here, 
and then we're going to have the tree going up, and we're going to have a branch going that way, and a branch going that way. And all these different branches. But the point is, is each end has its purpose. Each end has its purpose. The roots is where the tree gets everything that it needs. It's where it gets its water, its source. You know, people today, they, they can't stand roots at times. They, they mess up the sidewalk. They mess up your pipings, whatever it does, because they're looking for water. Because that's the source that they need in order to stay alive. And then at the other end, the trees look beautiful because they have all the leaves and all the fruit sometimes growing on them. And it's beautiful how they can reach beyond and go far, far out there. And sometimes what you have to understand is the only way a tree can really expand and grow and look lush and beautiful is because of what the roots down here are doing. It's only because of what the roots down here are doing. And that's kind of like it is with the Lord. The Lord has to be our source for how we get things done. And if the Lord is, if we're rooted and we're grounded in Him, then everything will flow out from Him, and then we will grow, we will change, we will have blessings, and everything will be able to reach, you'll be able to reach out and touch other people because of the way the Lord grows in your life. I think I heard an amen. Amen. (laughs) And so... The thing is, it's really beautiful when that happens because we're like a conduit. We're totally being used. God is pouring in at one end, and we're being able to touch out on the other end. And that's the way God has always wanted it to be. The blessings are to work that way so that we will grow and that we will also make other things grow and that we will bless others in return. And I love the senses words God uses here. They'll be beautiful. They will be aromatic. They will provide shade. All these different sensory words by which you feel, by which you smell, by which you see. And that's kind of what our life is to be about. It's to be that, kind of as Rabbi Haim was talking, that multi-purpose tool that can reach in and touch people in a way that we understand that we've been used by God. Now, at the conclusion of this chapter, in verse 9 or in verse 10, whichever Bible you have, there's an interesting statement. Can we have that read again, verse 9 or verse 10? The last verse of chapter 14 of Hosea. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them. But transgressors will stumble in them. So why do you think it ends with that? Why do you think there's a there's a, a coming back to that? Well, in in some ways it's it's a little bit like the Ezekiel passage that we were talking about last week where God is saying like remember duh kind of like, you know, the spiritual word for duh in a sense, do you not get what I'm saying? You want to choose the right way and not go the wrong way, right? You don't want to be unwise and fall in the, and stumble, right? So you want to be wise. 
But I think there's also something here that's being pushed at as well. And I think it's something we all worry about sometimes. Because there's always going to be somebody who doesn't do it just the way we think they should be doing it. Maybe they're really not sincere in their change. Maybe they're really not doing it the way that you think God would have them do it. And the fact is, God knows that too. God knows that, and I think that's kind of why this verse is here. The righteous will live by these ways. They'll walk in them. But if a sinner or someone who's really not on target, what happens if they try to walk in them? They stumble. They stumble, but usually they're found out, right? They're trying to do it in their own strength. Well, they could be. They could be trying to do it in their own strength. And there's a lot of believers today that are good-meaning people that try to do it in their own strength. But I'm just letting you know, if someone really doesn't have that heart change, and they still want to go forth, and they still want to be like, I'm spiritual, I'm righteous, I know what it means, I know what it looks like, and if they try to walk the right ways... God will find them out, because eventually they're going to fall down. God is eventually going to find out. And so I think this is a verse mainly about sincerity. If God is really working in you, and you're really sincere about it, you're going to walk upright. You're going to be righteous if you're really wise and discerning, and really doing what God's called you to do. But if you're not righteous, and you're not discerning, and being foolish, and yet you try to appear as though you are, God's saying, I think you're going to end up falling on your face. You end up going to stumble and you're going to end up falling. And it's an interesting thing because I think God wants the whole package. He wants us to be being with our heart and with our actions. And so it's very important that what takes place be part of who we are. And so that's why I think Rabbi Haim wanted me to I don't know if there was something else to share out of this passage, but I really prayed about it and really sought the Lord, and I think this is what God had for us tonight. If there's any other comments or questions, I don't know. Am I on time? Or? Yeah, we've got at least five more minutes. We've got ten minutes, really. Okay. Well, I don't know if people have any questions or comments. or. I have a comment. It's pretty early on, but about the sacrifices so they are building a temple and are wanting to resume sacrifices so is that something we can say so it says remember you're talking about the Jewish people and how they say we don't need sacrifices right now yeah well not everybody agrees with that and so I mean it depends on who you talk to because they're when you talk to any kind of people sometimes you have five over here that think yeah, and ten over here that think no, or you know. So you're always going to have different opinions on that. Part of the part of the thing we know in prophecy is whether or not the temple's restored. We know there's going to be an altar again, and we know there's going to be sacrifices on that altar. And so that's just part of what God's part of God's timeline and what He's going to do because He says so in Matthew and where He says. You know, and when we read in Daniel what takes place there. But overall, the point is, there's still only one way to get atonement, and it's through the Messiah. 
You know, Yeshua makes that very clear. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so, I mean, they're still going to happen. There's still going to be people looking to establish their own way of righteousness. That's been happening from the beginning, and it will probably happen long after things are over. There's still always going to be people thinking they know the way to to get where they're going instead of going the way the Lord's telling us to go. And so, um, in terms of that, it is going to be a problem for rabbinic Judaism when that happens because they've preached for so many years, it's prayer, penitence, and good deeds, you know. And so, that that's something they'll probably address, and there, there may be some flip-flopping, I don't know. But remember, when the Word of God, and when things come up against Jewish tradition, um, the rabbis have the final trump card, in a sense. Well, you know, in Daniel, it says the Antichrist is going to stop the daily sacrifices just before the tribulation. You know that, right? Yes. And so that tells me there will be an altar, which there was an altar in Ezra, but we didn't have a temple totally established yet. So if there's an altar, there will be sacrifices, but I'm wondering if the temple will be fully... I mean, you have to remember how many years it took them to build the temple. It took years. And so, um, I don't know how... I mean, we do have the technology to do a lot of different things we do today that are not that were not available back then. But it's still going to take a number of times before any kind of building is erected, in that sense. And so, and my understanding is, if he's going to stop sacrifices, then that must mean they're just at least, for the minimum, has to be an altar. I'm understanding that there are stones cut and hidden in the desert and that it would take about two years to actually build the temple. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what I've heard. Well, they have, who is it that's working on the red heifer? There's a group of people who are doing genetic red heifer breeding. You've heard that it's a, it's, it's, Yeah, there's just a group who was doing the genetics for the red heifer breeding and all of that sort of thing. But it's in God's hands. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, I mean, the the daily sacrifice has a a purpose. I mean, the daily sacrifice was always there as a testimony. As a testimony, that's what it was first and foremost there for. That this is where you came to worship the Lord. And and even the stopping of that sacrifice does represent something in heaven. I mean, I don't clearly understand everything, but if everything is patterned after the tabernacle or the temple in heaven, then there must be a purpose to even the daily sacrifice of what that testimony means. And so, um, I'm not saying that, you know, that... Uh, those sacrifices will be valid for atonement to bring people back into right relationship with God, but there are still other sacrifices that were brought to the temple aside from that. So I don't know if that answers your question or not. Michael, I got lost with which temple and which, are we talking um, future to come sacrifices or Ezra's? I got lost when we were talking about which system, where we're going to be. 
just now. <laughs> See, and I lost everybody else. That's my job. So. Um, <laughs> yes, both end. Okay. That's okay. what Rabbi Hang would usually okay. say. <laughs> and then the only other comment I had was about, you know, you're talking about sins and being righteous and all this stuff, but, you know, we're also supposed to confess our sins to somebody, too, and I don't know that, I don't know. When you say we are supposed to confess our sins to somebody... Is it the first John 3? Is that first John passage? You mean another person or the Lord? Well, no, it says in first John, where is it? 1-9. First John 1-9, it's confess your sins to you. What is, do you know what I heard? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No, that's not the... I think you're thinking of the James 5.16 that was in your notes. And and that was in the context of bringing people before the elders for prayer. And it says, and if someone has sinned, let him confess and he will be raised up and healed. And so, I mean, there is is a, a matter of that if, you know, that needs to take place. But that's only... I think in situations where God knows someone needs to confess something out, and to, that that's the doorway to healing. So I mean, I don't I don't always know. Because I don't I pretend know. to be like the Catholic priest saying you've got to confess your sins to me because I have no, the like track that. to it healing. Sounded, like when you were talking about, it sound, sounded really harsh. Like it didn't sound balanced to me. Like it's like okay, here's God, and he's like this and like this. You know, it just didn't seem very balanced. Well, there are, like I said, there are reasons why. My main more objective here was to pull out of the fact that why was God, why was the fact that God wanting sincere repentance through their mouth? Because a lot of, and I think that the overall point that Hosea is bringing out is people were doing something with their actions, but it wasn't representative of what was in their heart. And they were just going through the motions. I think that's kind of what Hosea is alluding to. But a lot of Jewish people who want to say, see, this is an example where God forgave them, or God will heal them and forgive them if they bring forth what's just from their mouth, and they didn't have to bring forth a blood sacrifice, if that makes sense. Michael, are you just pointing out that people like to make salvation or forgiveness they like to to reconstruct what God has said to make it work for them as opposed to just understanding what God requires I think what I'm saying is when I look at what Hosea is talking about here directly it's a particular aspect that David kind of touched on where he said Hosea is wanting both their actions and what was in their heart to match up and at this point in the narrative, there would come a time where what they said would be meaningful because their actions had not been. Because they would be genuine. Yes. And it would be consistent. Yes. Okay, thank you. But it wasn't to say that the atonement would happen for them through that particular sacrifice. Okay. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Any other questions? Art, would you close us in prayer tonight? Certainly. Our Heavenly Father, 
We thank you for this lesson today on Hosea. We ask that you be with us as we go out from here and have your Holy Spirit guide us and direct us. In Yeshua's name, amen.